Hey everyone, before we get into today's talk, we just wanted to take a moment and say thanks. Thanks for listening and thank you for all your support. And if this is the first time you're hearing this podcast, we just want to let you know that we are a church that meets in the Greenville area in South Carolina. We are really passionate about faith, creativity, culture, and building community. Our heart is that this podcast brings added value to your life, as well as it helps you in your own journey of faith and understanding the human experience. And with that, let's get right to it. All right, good evening. Well, I I have some unfortunate news. Yesterday, the city of Greenville put on a putt-putt tournament at McPherson Park. If you don't know where McPherson Park is, it's just right off North Main, downtown. There's a little putt-putt park, public park down there. And they put on this uh, putt-putt tournament. And so myself and a few guys in here, we went and did the putt-putt tournament. And I had imagined that I would stand here today victorious. And because it's Masters Weekend also, and it's the most important golf tournament year-round is happening right now in Augusta. And the winner of that golf tournament gets what's called a green jacket. It's a coveted item in the golf world and the golf lore. Every golf legend's dream, every golfer's dream is to have a green jacket. So when Greenville put on this putt-putt tournament, the winner of the putt-putt tournament was going to get a green jacket. So... Putt-putt is mini-golf, in case you didn't know what that was. My wife just wanted me to clarify that for you. And my plan was to wear the green jacket tonight. I was going to preach in a green dress, you know, proper jacket. So this is how it went down. Had a good, solid first round, had a really great second round, and I tied for first place with another guy, a punk. No, I'm kidding. He was a nice kid. Nice, nice kid. And um, we tied. And so in order to figure out a winner, they do a playoff on hole number one. And so we go to hole number one, and my strategy did not pay off. I lost the hole, therefore I lost the green jacket. So I had to endure him putting on this green jacket that I had envisioned in my head I would do tonight for you, because I love you, and I'm competitive, and I really wanted to win. That's actually the real reason. It would have been a major source of pride. I would have hung it up. I would have had some fun with the green jacket. So I went up to the guy afterwards, and I said, I'm getting that next year. He said, I'm practicing. I said, I'm practicing every day. I'll see you next year. You think I'm kidding? That's exactly what I said. That is exactly what I said. So anyway, I'm hoping to stand here a year from today wearing a green jacket. So if anybody wants to pray, thank you, Ben. That's like a sarcastic mocking clap. That was not genuine at all. Felt total sarcasm. You're not allowed to pray for me. All right. Anyway, it was super fun. It was a fun little gathering. Probably there were 500 golfers. No, it was like 50 golfers. So we had a good time. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to sharing tonight. It's obviously Palm Sunday. We have Easter next week, and this is a special season, especially for us that follow Jesus. This is a yearly reminder of what Jesus did for us thousands of years ago. It's a yearly reminder of what led up to this moment to be crucified and to go to the grave and and ultimately be 
you know, brought back to life and everything that that meant, not just for the people present, but what it means to us even today in 2022 right here in this mill. And it's an important holiday is not the quite, quite the word I'm looking for, but it, it's an important occasion for us in our faith, in our Christian faith, understanding the depth and the gravity uh, and the intensity of what took place leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, etc. And tonight, one of the challenges we have is, as people living in a very modern context, and specifically in a Western context, is we often miss out on the depth of what's taking place in stories in Scripture. So one of the things that I try to do on a personal level, and obviously whenever I get a chance to communicate in this kind of format, my, my heart and goal is to take us a little bit deeper into the story because sometimes we, if we don't understand the context of what's taking place or this moment or comment within the stories we're reading, if we don't understand the cultural ramifications, if we don't understand what's going on in the minds and hearts of the people within these stories that we read in, in the Bible, then we simply just gloss over them. And, and we just, we just all, all we really get is what our first experience was in reading that passage or that story or that, that scripture in the Bible. And I, I know for me, as a follower of Jesus for pretty much the entirety of my life, I can easily slip into patterns where I'm just reading scripture. I'm just reading it because I'm supposed to read it. You know, you got to put the Word of God in you every day. I'm a pastor's kid. Short for that is PK. And at 13 years old, I would challenge, if, son, if you read your Bible in the entirety in one year, I will buy you a 22 rifle. So the 13-year-old, that's like the dream when you live in the mountain and hunting is right out your back door. And if you're an anti-hunter, I apologize, but the culture I was raised in is something that we did and we celebrated. And so at a very young age, my dad and my mom bribed me into reading my Bible. And people say, you shouldn't bribe your kid, but my parents say, but look at how our kids turned out. So there is a place for bribing for some of you. And we would get ice cream after church on Sunday if we worshiped with our hearts, like we were into it. You think I'm joking. I am not joking. This is my childhood right here. So I would close my eyes and raise my hand, and all I could see was ice cream. That's my childhood. I could go on and on about this, what it's like to be raised as the pastor's kid. And uh, communion was always special because by the time the service was over, Brian and I, my brother, would go to the back and eat all the leftover communion. <laughs> lots of sourdough bread and lots of grape juice. Anyway, let's move on from my childhood. <laughs> but because of my upbringing and because of my familiarity, if you allow me to say that, I can just gloss over Scripture. So I, I work hard in my familiarity to slow down when I'm reading the Bible to, okay, what, why is this such a big deal? And I can understand people that this is why it's a big deal, but if I don't have a personal experience with this passage, then I simply gloss over it. And tonight, I want to slow down just for a moment. I want to talk about some of the events that led up to Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter. I want to take a moment and just kind of go a little bit deeper than maybe some of us are used to and just understand what's at play here, what's going on here. 
And for most of us in this room that have followed Jesus, we understand that Jesus died. He went to the grave and resurrected and he went back to the Father. We understand that to a degree as much as our human minds allow us. But I want to touch on something different tonight. You know, every one of us writes a story. We're, our story, our life is a story. It's being written as we speak. Our experiences, our upbringings, our background inform the narrative of our stories. So much so that we actually hinge our future on the narratives that we have written inside of our hearts and minds about our lives and about life in general. And in storytelling and in narrative, have you ever watched a movie or maybe read a book where there's a character and over the course of the book or movie, this character changes and becomes another character? You know, a hero becomes a villain. Oftentimes, a villain becomes a hero. Or you have this character and you can't tell if they're a hero or a villain. Take Maleficent, for example. When you first watch that movie, you're like, I don't know if she bad or is she good. And the whole movie, the, the way it's written is like, you can't tell if she's a good person or a bad person. And so you're in this journey of like, I don't know what character this is, but by the end of the film or at some point in the film or book, you're like, oh, okay, she's a hero. She's not a villain. Or, oh, they're a villain, not a hero. And they call when a character changes over the course of a story, they call that a dynamic character. There's another, there's another experience with dynamic characters. Sometimes the character doesn't actually change. It's just your assumption and your idea of the character was off in the first place. And over time, you're like, wait, that person is not meeting my assumptions, my narrative that I've already written about this person. So sometimes the person changes. Sometimes it's you that changes. And I think a really good film or movie, it's actually when you realize you were off, in the first place, that your expectations, assumptions about that character weren't right from the get-go, but over the course of the narrative and the story, you begin to realize, oh, this is who that person really is. Have you ever, have you ever met a stranger? Of course you have. It's a rhetorical question. <laughs> have you ever met a stranger and something just happened? It's like, you're not a stranger. There's some, there's some connection, and, and pretty soon that stranger becomes a friend. Those are beautiful moments when a stranger becomes a friend. Sometimes it happened in an instant, and sometimes over the course of time. It's even more beautiful when an enemy becomes your friend. So here we are. We all live within the context of life and experiences and narratives, and we're all constantly writing. And have you noticed that Inside our heart, there's a space, there's a special space for someone that's a hero. And it's interesting, sometimes, you know, for some of us, we're our own heroes. No one ever makes themselves out to be the villain. When you're writing your narrative of your life, it's very rare when someone said, yep, I'm the villain. No, all of us are heroes in our own story. But it's actually really helpful when you finally recognize you might be the villain. Because when you're the villain, when you begin to recognize, oh, for the last 20 years, the same things are happening because of me. It's actually helpful in our progress, in our formation, in our, in our progression as a human being, especially the, as a Jesus follower, to be recognized. There are times where I'm actually not the hero. I'm actually the villain in my own life, and I need to deal with that. 
I need to deal with whatever's causing this in my own life. But inside every one of our hearts, we have a space that's reserved for a hero. Especially when you're in trouble. If you're in financial trouble, you're like, man, I just wish something or someone would come and get me out of this financial trouble. How many have ever been there? You're like, you know what, I met, this was my doing, but man, could someone just come around and just take care of all this and I won't do it again? Like, we have a space in our psyche and in our soul that desired our hero to come. And if you're in a marriage crisis or you have marital issues, you just want someone to come into the situation and save you and rescue you and save your marriage. Or maybe you've gotten into something so deep, you don't even know which way's up. There's a space in your heart that's like, man, I just need a hero. I just need someone to get me out of this mess. And this is important to understand that we actually, if you ever wondered why we have a space in our heart for heroes, it's because there's a future that we long for, but we don't know how to get there, but maybe someone else will. Maybe someone else can get me to this utopia that we've created in our mind, in our lives, or at least a space where I'm not in the negative in, in this area of my life. I'm actually in the black. And we've got, because of our imagination, because of our life and upbringing, the experiences, we've created these narratives out there. And if we don't know how to get there, will somebody get me there? This is part of the human psyche, and it's also a longing deep within our soul. And when the human soul desires freedom, it's proven it will go to great lengths to get it. And some of those great lengths are really bad ideas. We can look at human history where, where a nation or a people group put all their eggs in one basket on one person and said, this is our hero. And as we know, human nature, we live in a broken world, no human will ever fulfill the role of a hero. It's just literally not even an option. They could do some, but they will always let you down. And some of us have lived life long enough to go, you know what, I did that once. Maybe you voted for somebody and you thought that they would save everything. And you realize that didn't work. And so some of us are like, I am not putting all my eggs in one basket again. I'm going to divvy it out so I can protect myself because that was a massive letdown. Some of you staked your entire life on an idea and it didn't actually work. So now you're like, whoop, I don't like being let down. I don't like discouragement. I don't like failure. So I'm no longer going to put my eggs in those baskets. This is part of what it means to be human. This is what we call the human experience. It's part of our psyche. It's part of our soul. And we're in this ongoing journey of trying to navigate how do we get by and how do we get along in this life. To understand what Jesus meant to the Jewish people, we have to understand Israel a little bit more. And I can't do justice tonight in this conversation, in this talk, but I can give you some heads ups that might help to understand what's actually happening leading up to Easter, Palm Sunday. What's actually happening in the moment when Jesus stepped on earth. To give us a broader understanding of what's happening in the minds and hearts of people that were alive in those moments. You see, Israel had faced incredible loss in their history, such excruciating loss, but they've also experienced incredible success and victory. They had some of the most 
agonizing moments where they're literally inches away from their promised land. But instead, they end up back in a space we call the wilderness for 40 years. So talk about just barely almost getting there, and then all of a sudden, you have to wait 40 more years. So we can look at Israel, the breadth of their history. They, they know what it means to have everything, and they also know what it means to lose it all. So this is the context that Jesus decides to step on earth. And to add to the layer of a painful, agonizing, and glorious history, they are now currently under the oppression of the Roman Empire. I can't do, I cannot go into the depth of what that actually meant because of time, but if you are bored tonight, or bored at all in the next few days or a week, do a little study on the Roman Empire and the oppressive nature that that empire put on Israel. You can Google it. There's a lot of great information out there. Now, make sure you can find two or three sources for whatever you do read, just for the sake of citing and quoting people. But it's fascinating. The reason I'm encouraging you to do this, you have to understand the depth of what is taking place. So when Jesus shows up, why things played out the way it played out. It'll help a lot to understand how meaningful how existential Jesus was. You and I have it easy. You know why? We see the whole story. We got a nice app, or we got a nice leather Bible in front of us. We're like, why were they whining back here? Don't they know Jesus is coming? I can't believe they complained. Just wait two days and this thing happened. It's easy when you're not in the story. It's amazing how many of us make fun of the nation of Israel in the wilderness like a bunch of whiners. They just complain. They just complain and complain. They had no idea. And it's so funny because I guarantee you 99.99% of us would be in the exact same situation. If we're complaining about Wi-Fi not working in a coffee shop, I guarantee you we'd be complaining about everything the nation of Israel experienced. I would never do that. It's just so not true. It's amazing. So to understand, you and I have it easy because we see the whole story. We see the beginning. We see the middle. We see the end. Like, oh, just wait. There's a character named Moses. Moses is going to call them along and save y'all. You, we can see the whole story. But remember, when you read the Bible, put yourself within the context of the story and try to do your best to imagine what it was like to be a Jewish person in this moment in the human timeline. Now, to understand the Jewish situation, you have to understand their eschatology. You might ask, well, what's eschatology? Eschatology is your perspective and view of the future and end times. How does this thing play out? That's your eschatology. And I guarantee you, if I were to interview everybody in this room, everyone has a different version of what the future looks like and what the, how time actually ends. We all have different reasons for it. Well, this is what I read, or this is what I was raised in, this is my experiences, and this is just what my face said. All of us had a different expression of our own eschatology. But to understand this story of Jesus and the whole entirety of his ministry, it's important to understand what are some of the general points of Jewish eschatology. If you want to write these down, obviously this will be on podcast. You can go back and listen to it. But I'm going to read you a few general points. This is not entirely their eschatology because that would take forever. And I don't even know the entirety of their eschatology. But I can give you some of their main general point of some of, the, of their eschatology. 
that Messiah is the future king from the Davidic line. So that King David, his lineage would produce a Messiah that would eventually rule all of Jewish people. The Messiah would usher in the kingdom of God, restore Israel, or whatever dispensation was considered to be the ideal state of the world. Another, another viewpoint of their eschatology was most Jews had some form of future hope in that God would intervene and restore Israel to, into a state of peace, freedom, and prosperity. Some thought it would come from David's linear, lineage. Others did not. Some thought that there would be a great war and the angel Michael would cause great damage in this great war and then God himself would deal the final blow. Some were ready to take up arms against Rome, and if they did, God would intervene on their side. Some were hoping for divine deliverance, but were unwilling to fight. All in all, the Jews felt since they are God's chosen people, they were to be free of foreign domination. As you can see, everyone had a story, a narrative about their future and how it plays out. And the hero in their heart that they're so long for, they called Messiah. Now, if you have your Bibles, once you open up to Luke chapter 4, we're going to read a passage in there. And we're going to just take a few minutes to unpack a moment in the life of Jesus. And as you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of what's happening leading up to this. By this point, we learn that Jesus is around 30 years old. He had been on earth for 30 years. We lose track of him about the age of 12 is what scholars tell us. So his entire teen years, excuse me, and his 20s, we don't really have much record of what takes place. We can obviously assume, and it's pretty accurate, that he grew up. He became a man. He obviously understood culture as a Jewish man, but he experienced what it's like to be under Roman oppression for about 30 years. So let's just say Jesus was familiar with the landscape that he was placed within. So around the age of 30, something happened where Jesus is led into the wilderness, and he attempted by the devil for how many days? 40 days, and he fasted for 40 days. We learned that this would actually, in a way, like a final test before Jesus steps into a public profile. He stepped into a space where everyone knows who he is. So he comes out of the wilderness, he passed the test and the temptation, and he comes out, and this is what he does. He showed up in the synagogue on Sabbath. Now, tradition in Jewish culture is you would go to the synagogue, which there would be a space similar to this. They had lots of traditions and customs, and what they would do, if you were brought up in that tradition, you would read portions of the Torah or portion of some of the older passages in the Old Testament. So Jesus comes out of the wilderness. He heads to the synagogue. Remember, he's around 30 years old, so they know who Jesus is, not as the Jesus we know. He's just a guy who's the son of a carpenter. And by now, there's probably a good chance he did some interesting, maybe he's like, how did that person get healed? How did, and you just wonder something about this guy. So Jesus showed up in the synagogue, he grabbed the scroll, and he flipped it open to Isaiah. There's a portion of scripture, Luke chapter 4, let's start in verse 16, and let's read this together. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. 
Pause right here. What's he doing? He's about to read a portion of Scripture that the prophet Isaiah had declared many years before. And this is what it reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive, and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Pause right there. Just as a quick side note, but you notice the recovering of sight to the blind, that blind eyes would be healed. In Jewish tradition, whoever would heal blind eyes would be considered the Messiah. This is why healing blind eyes was such a big deal in Jewish tradition and Jewish culture. So when Jesus healed them blind eyes, it got a whole lot of people's attention. But Jesus, verse 20, he closed the book, gave it back to the minister, and sat down. One thing I love about Jesus, he's really good at creating awkward moments. He just it's a pro at it. I'm like, his sense of security and self is so high. He's like, I like this awkwardness. This tension is what I would, I mean, that's just Jesus there. So he sits down and all eyes are on him in the synagogue. Look at verse 21, last verse. And he began to say, it or the, say unto them, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. What's he saying? What I just read, that's me. Now, we're like, yeah, come on, Jesus, it's about time, but put yourself in that moment like, hmm, this is interesting. A guy just claimed to be the Messiah. Now, we love it. We're excited because it's our tradition. It's our faith. But in that moment, how many realize a lot of Messiahs have come along? There were other people who said, I'm the one. I'm the one. So how are they supposed to know this is actually the one? But what's interesting to me, it's somewhere deep inside the soul of the Jewish community, they long for a Messiah. They were waiting for their Messiah to get them out of Roman oppression, to reinstate them as the nation. Just like you and I have a space in our heart for a hero, in Jewish culture, they had a space in their heart for a Messiah. So Jesus says, that's me. The story they have written on their hearts just found the Messiah their soul longs for. So here we have, so Jesus leaves that, and not much long after, he basically does what I'm just going to loosely call his acceptance speech. What's an acceptance speech? You, in the political context, I'm the candidate, I accept my position for this party, and here's my speech. So obviously there was no vote on Jesus, but just work with me with the language. Jesus said, okay, I'm the Messiah. So imagine the people that actually believed that he was the Messiah. Or like, let's just give this guy a chance, because what else do we have to lose? I mean, we're under Roman oppression, and we're done with this, so let's at least follow this guy. So there had to be some like quest people that were all in, people that are questioning, and then some people were totally not for this guy. So Jesus stands up. Imagine if you allowed Jesus to take that space in your heart as the Messiah. You're like, oh, this is it. He's finally come. He comes from David's line. This is him. This is the guy. So imagine giving that space in your heart, and you're thinking, okay, in order to change our environment, we have to overthrow the Roman Empire. Remember, their eschatology is loaded with getting rid of the Roman Empire. Let's get free of this. What do we need to do? So they're waiting for Jesus to give the command of how is this thing going to play out? Are we going to war? Is it going to be covert, over? Is it going to be subtle, subversive? How are we going to overthrow this oppression? 
So Jesus steps up in Matthew chapter 5, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most profound teachings of Jesus. And we love it. We read it. We do our devotions on it. We feel enriched. But in that moment, I'm going to tell you what my conviction is. This was not the acceptance speech they were expecting. Because this is the first word. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. How did that throw the Roman Empire out? Blessed are those that are meek. Now, by now, you're like, wait, wait, how is this going to overthrow the empire? This isn't going to throw over. This is going to put us more underneath the oppression. If we don't fight back, we're doomed, literally forever. And we thought this guy was our Messiah. Blessed are those that seek first the kingdom of God. And then by the end of that first section of what they call the Beatitudes, he said, oh, yeah, by the way, if you follow me, you're really going to get persecuted. They ain't going to like you. They're going to come after you, and it's going to be rough if you follow me. So imagine you just gave Jesus that space in your heart to be the hero, the Messiah, and he had, that's his acceptance piece. That's not very encouraging. It's great from a virtuous, being a good person standpoint, but when you're oppressed, that's not the message you want to hear. And then Jesus keeps talking. He says, hey, guys, listen, I know that it's custom and it's a law that when a Roman soldier comes to you as a Jew and says, hey, I need you to carry my bag, you literally have to drop everything, and you have to carry their bag for a certain distance. It was written within the law. They had to carry their bag a certain distance to give the soldier a break. So you had to drop everything in your life, put on the bag of the Roman soldier, and walk with them a certain distance. And Jesus said, I know that's in the law, but this is what we're going to do. When that happens to you, don't just walk the distance they require. I want you to go an extra mile. So, like, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So the oppressor now gets to oppress me more? And then he said, oh, yeah, I know they like to slap you. That's the custom here in Roman culture. They slap you. So when they do that, just give them the other cheek. Are you guys following me here? What's happening here? This is not the acceptance speech that you want to hear when you're in oppressed, when you're in oppressed state. You're looking for a Messiah that's going to kick some you-know-what. And that's not what's happening here. So now we've got this dilemma within the soul of a Jewish nation, especially the one decided to follow him. And as we follow Jesus along in his story, he is deconstructing what the future looked like to them. He's unraveling because they're thinking, we're going to the Roman throne. We're going to take over the throne that ruled all the people. And Jesus said, that's not the throne I'm going for. There's a throne much greater and much different than that one. So he's deconstructing their idea of what the future looked like. What's fascinating to me, too, is that Jesus decided to spend three years in public profile and public ministry. Have you ever wondered why did he spend three years doing this? I mean, it would have been more efficient, cost-effective, lots of time saved if he would have just came and did a 30-day conference <laughs> and seminar and just taught everything in one month. And he offered it for free. He's like, listen, I'm just going to get it all out at once, and then I'm out of here. That would have been so much easier. So have you ever wondered why he just didn't do that? That would have been pretty efficient in a lot of ways. But for some reason, he chose to be with them for three years. I understand there's lots of extenuating circumstances that lead to the three years, but just work with me for a second. Why three years? 
This is just Eric's thought. This is my imagination. What I learned is that for the first three years of an infant and toddler's life is some of the most formative for the rest of their life. They learn to move, their motor skills, their cognitive skills begin to develop. So by the time a child is roughly around three, they're able to communicate, they know who they are to some degree, and they're able to tell stories, and they can move their body the way it needs to be moved. They say if certain motor skills are not developed before the age of three, there's certain areas in their life later that actually will be underdeveloped. So the first three years of a human being's life is essential and important. So I wonder if Jesus knew that I got to spend three years with these guys because I'm going to have to develop them. Because it's not just knowledge. See, following Jesus wasn't just getting a bunch of information and knowledge. It was being completely redeveloped from the inside out. You see, discipleship in this context wasn't just I read my stuff for the day and I check into my accountability group and then I... No, it was everything was underneath this person that was discipling you. The idea was that your goal is to look like them, talk like them, think like them, and act like them. So it takes three years. So by the time we get to the end of these three years, we start to see... The disciples are starting to look like Jesus, starting to act like Jesus. They're actually have been redeveloped. They are now in the underbelly of culture coming face to face with the reject, the people that wanted the people wanted the stone to cast out. They are now face to face in the underbelly of culture. And they're also dealing with the religious elite. All of a sudden you see not just Jesus, but you see 13 men plus Jesus that actually are carrying out the mandates of the kingdom. And then you get to John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. And there's a shift in the narrative. And again, when you get to this point in the gospel, you are now approaching the season that we're currently in. Palm Sunday, the Passover, Lent, Easter, all this stuff that we talk about, we're getting very close. We're within now the timeline of what's happening leading up to Easter. What happens now is Jesus begins to hint Throughout his ministry, he would make statements like this. He would say, hey, guys, I'm going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. And they'd be like, wait a second, that temple took decades to build. How is he going to tear that down and build it in three days? He was speaking metaphorically. He was beginning to introduce. He knew they couldn't handle the gravity of the depth of what was about to go down. He knew it. So he said, I just need to warm them up. So by the time you get to John chapter 14, he is now telling the disciples, hey, I'm going to go. And Peter's like, where are you going? I'm coming with you. Of course it's Peter. Peter's always the first one to talk. Where are you going? I'm coming with you. And then Jesus said, no, guys, listen, I'm going somewhere. You can't come with me. And then the discussion in John 14 turned. Jesus said, listen, if you've seen me, because he said, I'm going to go be with my father. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And Philip goes, if you just show us the father, we'll believe. I'm like, you've been with him three years and you're still, I mean, it's just a fascinating, it showed you what they were wrestling with. He said, no, no, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And if, if you've seen the father, you've seen me, like you can't separate it. We're this one and the same. And then he began to introduce, what's fascinating about John 14, 15, and 16 is 14 and 15, they've been together three years. And there's a moment there, like Jesus would say something and the disciples go, what is he talking about? 
they literally did not understand what Jesus was saying. Not because of the word, they were so covered in, they had, there's, a term, there's a, a Greek term for the type of language that Jesus was using, and it was actually a riddle, a dark saying. Jesus was saying things in a word structure that didn't make sense. And they were like, what's he talking about? And then in John 15, something changed. Jesus said, guys, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. It's a powerful moment. The English language does no justice of what's actually happening here. What's happening in the language is Jesus says, guys, I'm no longer going to talk to you like servants. I'm going to talk to you like friends. And right after that, the disciples go, Oh, we finally understand what he's talking about. The actual language, Jesus went from concealed language to what the Greek word is for open, blunt, honest, straight-up language. So Jesus took a group of men for three years and recognized, okay, they're now ready for the whole truth, if I can say it that way. And he says, you are now my friends like. Wow, we now finally understand Jesus, which is amazing to me. The disciples stuck with Jesus for three years, and they did not understand what he was talking about. Talk about discipleship. We are, we are so finicky in discipleship, like, oh, they messed up, I'm out. We are so like touch and go, and these men said, we are all in. We are all in. So Jesus begins to say, God, I got to leave now, I want you to just imagine with me, what would that be like? You've endured putting Jesus into that Messiah hole in your heart three years ago. You've walked with him. You've experienced who Jesus is. You've experienced the ridicule. You've experienced the glory. You've experienced signs and wonders and miracles. You've experienced Jesus in all of its fullness. You've experienced it all. You've seen the prophet Isaiah, the word that he gave, be fulfilled in your life. The legend and the myth that you heard from a baby are now you are experiencing right now. And you are like, we are just getting started. Jesus is going to the throne. This is what's going down. And what's inter interesting to me is at one point, one of the moms go, hey, Jesus, can my boy sit next to you when you're on the throne? What was she saying? When you get to the throne of Rome, can my boy sit next to you? And then Jesus says this, I have to leave. And Peter freaks out. I'm going with you. Philip, like, this doesn't work. And all of a sudden, you've got the disciples in their moment of glory and just wonder. And now a moment of despair. They are now realizing Jesus is leaving them, and they can't go. You see, the human experience is all good things come to an end. How many have experienced something good in your life, and it comes to an end? Some of us are so used to that, that whenever something good starts, we already plan for when it's going to end. We're like, I can't, I can't give myself fully to that. I'll enjoy it, but I'm going to protect my soul and my heart and my mind from being too invested. You see, a human experience, when something good begins, it ends. And so here you have the disciples now are thrusted into the throes of despair. They're realizing this is about to come to an end, and Rome is still in charge of us. But here's what happened. I love it. This is a beautiful moment. Jesus said, guys, I have to go because someone else is coming. And I've already talked to the Father about it, and this is what's going to happen. And some translation call him the advocate other translations said the spirit. 
So the same spirit that hovered above the waters in Genesis 1, the same spirit that hovered above the waters and created everything in existence as we call the creation is the same spirit that Jesus is talking about here. You see, the kingdom understood that Jesus in human form could only be in one place at a time. But Jesus and God in spirit form could be in as many people as wanted and could cover the entirety of the globe. Talk about a network of networks. And this spirit, Paul tells us later in his book, he said this spirit searches the deep things of God. This spirit, talk about a search engine. That's the search engine of all search engines. This spirit will access the deep, deep, the dark, deep blue of God and bring them to you. And Jesus begins to guide, no, you want me to leave. I, I guarantee you, they're not like, okay, that's, no, they're like hanging on to their future, their story that they wrote about the future. And their Messiah, they thought was this, and all of a sudden they realized their assumption projection of that Messiah is now a different character. And so now we have this dilemma. So Jesus says, guys, don't worry. He's going to be your helper. We all need help. He's going to be your comforter. Why did, why did God tell the, tell the people, you need comforter? Because you're about to need a lot of comfort. Because you're a human living in a broken world that's got some issues. You're going to need a lot of help and a lot of comfort. And then he said, and also, because you're discouraged and in despair, you're going to forget some of the stuff that I've taught you. But don't worry, because the Spirit actually going to remind you of everything I taught you. How many, we've all experienced, if anyone has followed Jesus for any length of time, we're just going about our day. And all of a sudden, come, something comes back to mind. It's like, oh, that was something I learned years ago. And I totally forgot about it. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit saying, Eric needs to remember this right now and bring it in the back into my, the forefront of my mind. That's the role of the Spirit of God is to help you, comfort you, and to remind you of everything you taught. The Holy Spirit also does this, convicts you of sin. Hey, that right there, that can't happen. That is not how we act as sons and daughters of the king. That thing that is causing you to make these types of decisions, that is not from the kingdom that we're a part of. And also said the Holy Spirit will convict the world as well. So Jesus is getting the stage set for them to step into a whole new future that they never wrote. You see, the death and loss of Jesus wasn't only losing him, but it was also the loss of their idea of the future. You see, sometimes our version of the hero has to die in order for the hero's real intent to surface. Okay, I want to read the last passage to you. And I'm sharing this tonight with you for obvious reasons, as I've explained. But it's actually going to help us to begin to, as a church, as a community, begin to talk about the Spirit of God. We have Easter next week, which we're very excited about. It's going to be a fun, beautiful day of celebration. But in the coming weeks and months, we want to begin to dive into what it means, what the Spirit of God means. And what does it mean in our life? And we're going to begin to unpack that, not every week, but we will begin to unpack it because this is something that's hugely important to us. I'm going to read you a passage out of Galatians chapter 5. And Paul is actually talking to the church in the region of Galatia. 
And I'm going to jump to verse 16. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, I'll just read it to you. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. I love how Paul says that. It's so obvious what the acts of the flesh are. And he lists out some pretty painful stuff. He says sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I think Paul was having fun writing that. He's like, let's just keep adding more acts of the flesh. We're just going to make sure we get it all in there. But then this is the beautiful part. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, what did that mean? The result of the Spirit being in your life is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Jesus understands the despair of the human experience. And I think it's incredible that in the midst of the disciples' despair, he reveals to them a fulfilled promise. And that fulfilled promise was his spirit would live with us for the entirety of our life and beyond. This right here should be the normal Christian experience. Why don't you stand? Again, thanks for listening to today's talk. For more information, you can always go to our website, which is studiogreenville.com, or check out our Instagram, which is studio.greenville, and you can follow along for all the latest happenings and updates. Other than that, have a great week, and we'll see you soon.